Would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20? We're going to be looking at John's description of the resurrection of Jesus this morning. I'd like to read this passage of Scripture for us. John writes that early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for these words of John that record this most significant of events, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage of Scripture, that it would be fresh in our hearts. For those of us who have read it many times before, Lord, May it continue to bring that joy and hope and confidence that we have because of you and what you have done. And as we celebrate that and think about that this morning, would you speak to each of us a word of encouragement and hope and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. What a great day this is. I love Easter morning. There's always a sense of excitement and anticipation. It's the kind of day when you pull out all the stops in terms of the service and you want to just have this be a great day of praise because that's what it is. It is a day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. S. Lewis Johnson, who was one of my professors in seminary, said that the resurrection is God's amen to the statement that Christ made. It is finished. It's done. It's been paid in full. The debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul wrote that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this event is at the heart of our faith. The resurrection was the proof of Jesus' claims to be the Son of God, to be the Savior of the world. And for John, it is the climax of his gospel. But how do we know that it is true? How do we as Christians know that these things happen? Well, that's why John recorded this message for us. You see, Christianity invites us to examine the evidence. And I want you to know that that is actually quite unique among the different religions. No other religion except Judaism invites you to do that. That's because Christianity is rooted in history. It is an historical fact. It's an historical event. And the evidence is there to support it. I mean, if you were to look at some of the cults, for example, they really don't want you digging into their history or into their past. If you study the Book of Mormon, you will find that there is nothing in the Book of Mormon that fits with history and archaeology. You can't go to real places and events and match those things up. If you were to study about the Jehovah Witnesses, for example, too, and about Charles Tazzy Russell and how they began, there are things that they would not want you to know because they're kind of embarrassing, frankly. The evidence isn't there to support it. If you look at other religions and you look at Islam today, there is no such thing as textual criticism. It's just not allowed. You can't question the text or you could be killed. But Christianity invites us to come and see what God has done. It's the reason that the Gospels were written. It's why the Scripture is an open book and you can match things up with real history and events. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is supported by all of these things. And John tells us in this passage that very early on the first day of the week, on a Sunday morning while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene got up and she went to the tomb. We know from the other Gospels that there were at least two other women with her who came. They must not have been able to sleep very well that night. They wanted to arise early and come and they wanted to bring spices with them. They had come to anoint Jesus' body with spices because He had been buried on Friday just before the Passover. I mean, excuse me, just before the Sabbath. And there wasn't sufficient time to give him a proper burial. And so they came that morning wanting to do this in honor of Jesus. There's no mention of how they were going to move the stone. It seems they hadn't given that a lot of thought. Perhaps they thought that maybe a gardener or maybe some of the guards would help them to move it and allow them to enter the tomb. They came that morning simply because they loved Jesus and they wanted to do this for him. They were not expecting a resurrection. And when they came, they were actually quite shocked by what they saw. When they arrived at the tomb, the stone was rolled away, and there was no one there. There's no mention of the guards being there or anyone else. Instead, they see this empty tomb and they look in. And the body is missing. And so Mary runs to the other disciples, to Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We believe that is John that's being referred to here. She went to them 
And she said, they have taken away the body of Jesus and we don't know where they have placed it. She thought maybe the Romans had done this or maybe the Jewish leaders. But as the story continues, if those authorities had actually taken the body of Jesus when the disciples began to preach about the resurrection, they could have very easily produced the body. But they couldn't do that. When Peter and John hear about this, they run to the tomb. That's an evidence that they didn't know anything about the body either. Later they would be accused that somehow the disciples came, overpowered the guards and stole the body. No, the evidence here is that they were surprised by this event too. And they ran to the tomb. John was the faster of the two runners and he arrived there at first and he looked in. But he didn't go in. Peter charged right in. That kind of fits Peter's nature. He just ran right into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there and the burial cloth, and they were separated. And Peter was puzzled by this. I mean, why were the grave clothes still there? If the body had been stolen, wouldn't the grave clothes have been taken with them? Or if it had been moved, wouldn't they have taken the whole thing? And certainly if they had taken the time to unwrap the strips of linen, they wouldn't have placed them neatly there. They would have cast them aside. They would have been strewn to the side. But he looks at this and he's puzzled by all of it. And the word that's used here in Greek for the grave clothes and the way they were placed is kaimena. In Greek it is used for things that are neatly placed in order like papers on a desk. I mean, if you were a lawyer and you were setting out your briefs and you wanted them all neatly arranged, you would use this word to say that they were carefully placed in order. Or if you're folding clothes and you want them neatly placed on a shelf or in a drawer, you do that. That's, that's what Peter is saying. These grave clothes were neatly, carefully placed in order. It was as though the body had simply vanished. And finally, the other disciple entered. And John saw, and it says he believed. John saw and believed. This is a very interesting passage to study because John uses three different words in Greek that all refer to sight. The first word is the word blepo. It's found in verse 1 of Mary who saw with ordinary sight. Like the way you and I see each other this morning and you make a casual observance or you see some things and you recognize one another. Mary saw that the body was missing. No conclusion was drawn. The second word that's used is the word theoreo. It's in verse 6 where Peter saw. This is the word that we get our English word theory from. It means to see and think about something. Peter's thinking, what, what is this? He's looking at the evidence. What's going on here? Why are these grave clothes left this way? And then the third word for sight is, comes from the word orao in Greek. And it's used in verse 8. And it means that John saw and it means to see with understanding or with comprehension. John saw, added up the facts, came to a conclusion. Peter, don't you see it? He's alive. He's alive. 
the light was beginning to dawn. Now John adds the note that they still did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They didn't understand how all of these things fit together. But perhaps John is remembering Jesus' words from the upper room. That I will see you again and your grief will turn to joy. Peter, don't you see? Something's happened here. That's how it is for many of us who come to believe in Jesus Christ. There's a time when we perhaps were challenged or invited to examine the evidence, to look at the Scriptures, come and see what happened in these events. Come and see who Jesus really is. And it is that evidence that leads to faith. Evidence leads to faith. When you look at the life of many Christians, you'll see that that was true, for example, of Lou Wallace, the author of Ben-Hur. A few weeks ago, I shared his story of how he, living during that Civil War era, had been a military soldier, and he wanted to write a book. He was an atheist, wanted to write a book to disprove Christianity once and for all. And through his study of the life of Christ, he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God and wrote Ben-Hur, that Christian classic. It was also true for Frank Morrison, who was an English journalist. He set out to prove that that Jesus Christ's resurrection was a myth. And through his study of the evidence, he came to believe that it was true, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And he wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? And challenged others to consider the evidence. And in our own generation, Lee Strobel, was an atheist. He was a writer for the Chicago Tribune. And when his wife became a Christian, he was challenged by that. Now it's like moving into his home and he's going, you know, who are these Christians and why do they believe this stuff? And how can they believe this stuff? And as he began to examine the evidence, he too came to faith in Jesus Christ and he has written the books, The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. And there are many others just like them. What we see here in this passage is this growing evidence that leads to faith. For example, with Mary, it says when the disciples went back to their homes in verse 10, Mary stood outside the tomb and she was crying, she was weeping. And she bent over again to look into the tomb and now to her surprise she sees two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put them. She was so moved. She still doesn't understand what has happened. She just wants to see Jesus. And I wonder if one of the angels kind of motioned for her to turn around. Just, Just turn around there for a minute. And she turns around and she sees someone standing there. And my guess is that her eyes are so clouded by the tears still that she only sees the form of someone standing there and she doesn't recognize him. And he speaks to her. And he says, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And again, she thinks he's the gardener and she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. It wasn't until Jesus spoke her name that she recognized him. He called her by name, Mary. And she knew who he was. You know, I was thinking about that, how personal it is when someone calls your name. And how much we recognize that. 
I was only seven years old when my grandfather, Ole Stanghelly, died. He was 90. He had come over from Norway, and he still had that thick Norwegian accent, and whenever he said my name, Rickard, I, could, I knew it was my grandfather. And I remember that time when as he was getting older and he was more and more confined to bed, my dad brought me in, and it was kind of one of those moments of the patriarch of the family giving his blessing. A special moment. If my grandfather called my name, I would recognize it. If my dad called my name, I would recognize it. I think about if my mom called my name, especially if she used my middle name, I would recognize it. I see you've had that experience too. You know, there are things like that that are just so personal. And so here Jesus calls Mary's name. And she knows immediately who it is. And she falls at his feet. She calls him Rabboni. Teacher. Literally, my dear Lord. And she held on to him. She didn't want him to go. She didn't want him to vanish, if you will. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my Father. But instead, Mary, I have an assignment for you. I want you to go to my brothers and tell them that I am returning to my Father and your Father. To my God and to your God. Now think about that. He's saying, I want you to go to my brothers. In spite of all that had happened with the disciples, in spite of Peter's denial, in spite of the disciples' desertion and leaving Jesus, Jesus calls them my brothers. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers because we are of the same family. He became like us so that we might become like Him. He joined the human race. He took on our humanity and died for our sins. And now, as He is risen, He says, Go to My brothers and tell them that I am going to My Father and Your Father, My God and Your God. There's a new relationship being formed. It's like there's a change that's taking place. All those things that He was telling the disciples about, about the body of Christ and about this new community that was going to be formed and the need to love one another, the need to serve one another, pray for one another, work together. All of those things are taking shape. And Mary is to go and make this announcement that she has seen the Lord. Can you imagine how Mary felt? She probably ran all the way to find Peter and John. And I wonder if when she got there, if she said, you know, guys, if you had stayed around just a little bit longer, you would have had a really neat surprise. I have seen the Lord. And this is what he said. And it is remarkable that in that culture, where a woman could not be a witness in court, this woman, from whom seven demons had been cast out, This woman who was a broken woman, this woman who was one of the least of these, if you will, was the very first to see Jesus alive and go and tell the good news. What an honor. What a privilege. You see, faith also leads to responsibility. There's a responsibility that comes to those of us who believe. For Mary, faith brought the privilege and the responsibility to go and tell the disciples what she had seen and heard. For the disciples, faith would mean carrying on Jesus' mission as He has handed the baton to them and He wants them to bring the Gospel to the nations. 
see, Christianity is not a private faith. Christianity is a personal faith in the sense that all of us must believe individually in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. A parent can't do that for a child. A child can't do that for a parent. You can't do that for your spouse. Everyone needs to come to their own decision about who Jesus Christ is and place their faith personally in Him. But Christianity is not a private faith in this sense. It is meant to be shared. And we all have a responsibility in that. Jesus commanded the disciples and us to go and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. In Acts 1.8, He said, You shall be My witnesses starting right where you live and going to the ends of the earth. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul said, We are ambassadors for Christ. It is as though God were making His appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to Him. That is our privilege. That is our responsibility. It is for every believer to have a part in that. And here's where it began on the evening of that first day of the week with the disciples. Listen to what John writes in verses 19 to 23. He said, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. There they were, gathered in secret, gathered in hiding. They are afraid. They know the body is missing. They perhaps have even heard this rumor now that's being circulated that the disciples took the body. And they're going, the Jews are looking for us. They're going to want us. we got to get out of here. What are we going to do? And what does Jesus come? He comes and the very first word He says to them is peace. Peace be with you. And then He showed them His hands and His side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus wanted them to know He is alive. He's not a ghost. Here are my hands. Here's my side. Here are the wounds that I bear. But His resurrection body was not like His earthly body and that He was not bound by time or space in the way that we are. He could enter a room even though the doors were locked. On the road to Emmaus, He appeared to two of the disciples, spoke with them, and then left them, vanished from their sight. He's not bound in the same way that we are. And then... He gave this commission to the disciples. He said again in verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you into the world. And with that He breathed on them and He said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What was Jesus doing here? Power and authority were being given to the disciples for their mission. They would have the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. That is the pronouncement. The fulfillment will come at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. He's saying, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. God is the one who has the authority to forgive sins. But to those of us who know Him, He gives us this tremendous privilege to announce the good news of the Gospel, that your sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. Trust Christ. Call upon His name. Believe in Him as your Savior and Lord and your sins will be forgiven and washed away. 
If you reject Him, you will die in your sins. It is the pronouncement of the Gospel that was given to the disciples. Faith leads to responsibility. Each generation must reach its own generation for Jesus Christ. We need to hand the baton on to the next generation as well so that they may do the same. That's what the church has been all about through the centuries of passing on the good news of the Gospel and bringing it to those who do not know Jesus Christ. And then finally, in the last section, Jesus commands us to stop doubting and believe. You see, there was one who was missing when Jesus met with the disciples on that first evening. His name was Thomas, and Thomas was a skeptic. And here's how it went. In verse 24, John said, Now Thomas, called Didymus, which means twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Okay? He stated his case. In spite of all the disciples' assurances, he would not believe until he had seen Jesus himself. So one week later, Jesus comes, appears to them as they are again in this room, meeting in secret. And what does Jesus do? Jesus greets Thomas, and he uses Thomas's own words. And he says to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what does Thomas say to him? He says, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You know, when I look at this passage, it reminds me that Jesus knows our thoughts and our conversations too. There's no secrets with Him. There's nothing you can hide. Hebrews 4.13 says that everything is open and laid bare before Him with whom we will have to give an account one day. It's all there. Nothing's hidden, nothing's secret in our life. Jesus knows it all. He knows your hopes, your dreams, your fears. He knows your secret sins. He knows your questions. And Jesus wants us to believe in Him. And if you are honest in your search and you will take the time to read the Scriptures and ask the questions and come before Christ and say, Jesus, if You are real, would You make Yourself known to me? He will do that. He will answer your questions or He will change your heart in areas where you thought things were important that are no longer important. But He will make Himself known as you come before Him. Thomas had to see the scars. He had to see the risen Christ to believe. And Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In our situation, we believe on the basis of the Scriptures, the witness of the Apostles, and the work of the Holy Spirit today. We come to the Scriptures. We study the evidence. The Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and brings conviction, opens our eyes to see the truth of God's Word, and we come to believe in Him. That's the way it works. And if you have never come to faith in Christ before and you have questions about this, I want to encourage you 
to take those steps to read through what John has said here and the other Gospels. To come before God and be honest about any questions or doubts you may have and bring them to Him. But be open to hear His Word speak to you and to hear His Holy Spirit minister to you. The conclusion, John gives that to us in verses 30 and 31 when he says that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We've been studying the Gospel of John. And we know how John was very selective in what he chose. There are seven I am statements that Jesus made that John highlights. Things like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. Or I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There were seven miracles that John included. Out of all the miracles he could have included, he included seven that showed Jesus' power over sickness and over blindness, over death. He has the power to raise even the dead. And there were seven teachings that John included. Seven messages of Jesus that are included prior to the Upper Room Discourse. All of them chosen to point to this conclusion, to lead us to believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But the real question is, is He your Savior too? You know, if you're here today and worshiping with us this morning and you're not sure about your relationship with Christ, what a great day this would be to make certain about your faith And to just simply say to Jesus, Jesus, would you receive me? Would you forgive me for my sins? I acknowledge them before you. And would you come into my life and be my Savior and Lord? Jesus, I believe in you. If you'd like to do that today, I want to close with a prayer of invitation. And I'd ask you simply to pray this prayer along with me in the quietness of your own heart. Shall we pray? Jesus, I thank You that You were willing to die on the cross for my sins. And I open up the door to my heart. And I ask You to forgive my sins, to come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. Jesus, help me to know You better and to follow Your will for my life. Thank You, Lord, for all that You have done for me. Jesus, we praise You. We worship You today. Help us to be Your ambassadors even this week. Amen.